Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Millions of jobs being lost. There's a great deal of concern, of course, about how many jobs ultimately will be lost due to this pandemic. We're nowhere near the end of this particular tunnel. And uh, just looking at information from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, small business in this country, remember, the number one employer, the CFIB reports a median additional 158,000 small businesses nationally may be lost because of COVID-19. That is in addition to those who have already closed their doors. Uh, depending on the pace of the pandemic recovery, as few as 55,000 or as many as 218,000 small businesses may close for good. Dan Kelly is the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. We've spoken to Mr. Kelly many times during the pandemic. He's back with us. Dan, I saw that 158,000 uh, businesses closing number, the median number. And boy, that almost makes your heart stop. It sure does. I mean, imagine for your listeners, uh, as they drive around uh, their town or city, uh, that one in seven businesses may no longer be there by the end of this. You think about just the the lack of options that we would have coming out of that. You also have to think about the the jobs that would that would be associated with that. The community contributions to sports teams and every single uh, kids' activities fundraiser. Uh, the families that this would affect, the business owners whose life dreams would be disappearing, and it is quite heartbreaking to think about. And when we look at uh, the, the 218,000, potentially at the upper end of the scale, depending on how things go with the recovery, that 218,000 is an absolutely terrifying number, because as you state, not only do the small businesses contribute to the communities in which they're located, but they're part of an overall chain of delivery and supply. They sure are. I mean, gosh, the tax base alone that 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 comes from these businesses and everything that they do uh, disappearing would have huge put huge additional stresses on government to pay for the very services that all of us uh, depend on for healthcare and education. So it is. You're absolutely right. An absolute cycle here, and and uh, the impact of this could be massive. We're not too far gone. We can't. There's there's no question in my mind that we're going to see a huge number of business casualties, even with full utilization of all the government programs that have been put in place and, and everything going our way, the avoidance of a second wave, etc. Uh, but we can, uh, it's not too late to, to support some of these businesses and have the number of casualties be on that lower end of the scale uh, towards that 55,000 number, still a big number. Uh, but, but, but that's not without, we, we do have some control in that. We have control for, certainly for governments to ensure that there are proper supports in place, long-term supports, as the government did with the wage subsidy. And for us as consumers, supporting those local independent businesses uh, through CFIB's uh, Small Business Everyday Campaign and just getting out there and, and visiting those local communities, uh, community shops, restaurants, uh, local businesses, that can make a huge difference as well. Yeah, but we don't need to be where we are right now. This could have been managed better, should have been managed better. I know the government did things that were necessary, but they could have done more. And I wonder how frustrating it is for you to be observing all of what's going on around this we charity mess 
uh, with $912 million at play. I mean, that would an effort like that would go so far to helping the small business community in Canada, which, you know, has not received the kind of sustained support that it required from Ottawa. No, you're right. I mean, it's been it's been spotty. There have been some areas that uh, that the support has actually been quite good, and other areas where it's been almost non-existent. Uh, yes, the the We Charitable mess is is, is something that uh, many small businesses owners have pointed out. Uh, in fact, you know, for some of them, the challenge that we're facing right now is not so much of a lack of job opportunities for for young people, for teenagers, but in for many business owners, a lack of teenagers to employ right now because there is there's a hesitancy to come back to work and some of the support programs that have been put in place uh, have in fact incented people to stay home uh, which was of course the intended goal at the beginning but now that we're in the recovery phase is is not going so well uh, but yes the you know right now there's a there's a group of business owners on a video call I'm about to join who are absolutely furious with government for making commitments to extend the Canada Emergency Business Account, these CBA loans, uh, to more businesses two months ago, and yet no progress has been made. And, and i got to tell you, we're getting a growing number of business owners super frustrated that the, the support for the rent program and these CBA loan programs, the promises that have been made, have not been delivered. And we've got to be able to do a better job of that if we're going to see some of these numbers come down. Where is that rent program now? At what stage is it? So the government just uh, yesterday, uh, sorry, Friday, announced that they were going to extend it for the month of August. Now, gosh, announcing you're going (laughs) to add another month to the program, as helpful as that is, to do that on the absolute last possible second on the very last day of July July is really not the way to do this. Um, But on top of that, the program itself needs to be really rethought. We believe that probably only one in four businesses that qualify for the rent rent support will actually get the money that they are promised through this program because the landlord has to participate, and if the landlord can't or the landlord won't, the tenant gets no support. So we're pushing government to say, okay, give us another option. If the government, if if your landlord won't participate, rather than getting zero, at least get the support from the government subsidy directly to the business owner at the end of the food chain here and and we're pushing for that yeah. we haven't seen ottawa budge on this yet the provinces haven't been particularly helpful either we really need to see this happen i'm just thinking about what might happen if in fact there is a significant second wave of this coronavirus we know for example then on australia in the state of Victoria, in the city of Melbourne, they now have an, an overnight curfew, and they have declared a state of disaster because of the increased numbers of COVID cases. I'm wondering what a second wave of uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic would, would create in Canada. And let me just extend that a little bit. I visited my dentist uh, last week, Dan, and I, I don't think normally of doctors and dentists as being small businesses, but they are. And, and he said to me, look, I was able to survive the first one. I'm just putting my, my staff back on full salary now. He said, but if there's another wave and I have to close again, he said, I'm done. I'm out of business. I'm finished. There's, you know, we've, we did a special survey of our members who are healthcare professionals. And you, you, like many Canadians, don't think about how many individual business owners sometimes that we all come in contact with. Uh, every, most doctors in family practice are running a business. Dentists, the same thing. Physiotherapists, we're, uh, massage therapists. And, and these guys have been just, uh, just I mean, if, think about the retailers been hit hard enough. 
for these folks, they could do zero business through the pandemic because, of course, physical contact was a part of it other than on an emergency basis. And, and even now, their bills for personal protective and equipment are sky high. Mm-hmm. Customers are still hesitant to return in large numbers. You know, there's a lot of struggles, even for some that are perceived perhaps to have, uh, you know, that one would assume their dentist or doctor might have a little bit more financial wherewithal. That's not always the case, especially for younger people that are just starting a practice. So, we, you know, the, your, your point is an absolutely valid one. There are all sorts of horror stories. And as, as consumers get out and drive around, when we see more businesses open, uh, right now 62% of small businesses are open across Canada, fully open, um, they may be led to believe that everything's fine, that the economy's back to normal. But, you know, behind the scenes, that's just not the case. Sales are nowhere near where they need to be for these businesses to remain profitable. And then you add, as you just asked, about a second wave. Um, These businesses are already hanging by a thread. That thread will break if there is another round of, of, of forced closures on the business community. Now, I'm hopeful that we've learned enough from covid uh, that with more people choosing to wear a mask, uh, that that we may be able to put some practices in place that would, would not necessitate a full shutdown. But gosh, if we go down that road, the numbers that I just spoke about will be dramatically higher. Yeah. And, and one other quick factor here that occurred to me while you were speaking, not only are we looking at, through your numbers at CFIB, a median closure of 158,000, permanent closure of 158,000 businesses across Canada, possibly 218,000 at the upper end if things don't improve. But also what it does is it, I think, forestalls startups. People who would otherwise be starting a, a small business are saying, not now. You're a bang on. I mean, we looked at the bankruptcy rates and, and, you know, there are businesses in good economic times that fail. People make bad decisions. Of course. Uh, that, you know, they, they locate in an area that's not going to work. The business owner makes a mistake or two. So, yes, there, there are businesses in good times that close, but that's balanced out by business startups. These closures that I'm talking about are specifically related to COVID, not normal bankruptcies. And then, you got to think about the number of startups that won't have happened during this period of time because people are saying, "What the heck? I would be a fool to start a business at yep. this at this point in time." Now, yep. fortunately, there are some people that are that are taking that risk, and I give them great credit. But they're fewer in number than there is at, at nor- under normal times, and that's going to affect us all. Dan, great talking to you as always. Thank you. I wish you all the best at CFIB. You do great work for the small business community in this country. And one of the things, and you said it, that we need to remember is to be sure to frequent and patronize the small businesses where we live. They are they are the they are the bread and butter of our communities. Thank you, Dan. Talk soon. Thanks, Roy. You've been a complete champion for small business through the whole pandemic. Appreciate it. You bet. Uh, Dan Kelly, President and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. 100 years ago, the world was emerging from the H1N1 1918 viral flu pandemic. Began in 1918, there was a um, subsequent second wave that we've heard a lot about. And then in, in 1920, the world emerged. But let's look back at Canada during that pandemic and uh, how Canada is uh, l- dealing with the pandemic of today by comparison to 100 years ago. What was the international impact as well uh, of the 1918 pandemic? Professor Candace Bogart is an adjunct faculty member at the uh, Department of History at Wilfrid Laurier University. 
PhD at McMaster University on the 1918 influenza pandemic among soldiers in Canada. And she joins us on the Chorus Radio Network. Professor Bogart, thank you so much for the time. And you really looked at the, the, the military, um, the aspect of the military bringing the, creating the pandemic reality in, in, in this country. What role did the military have in bringing the pandemic to Canada? Uh, first, thanks so much for having me, Roy. Uh, and to answer your question, for a long time in Canada, it's believed that soldiers brought the flu home with them from overseas as they're being demobilized at the end of the First World War. But more recent research, started by Mark Humphreys, has found that soldiers were critical in the spread of flu, but not in the way that we previously thought. In fact, flu was already in North America, and the intensification of the war effort, so for example, bringing Polish-American soldiers north to train in Canada, and moving soldiers east and west across Canada to send them overseas, effectively spread the disease across the country before the majority of soldiers were ever brought back to Canada. And in the fall of 1918, when the most deadly wave of the 1918 flu pandemic began, military officials are faced with a really difficult choice to continue recruiting, training, and moving soldiers for the war effort or stop in the interests of public health. But they didn't have the benefit of hindsight like we do to know that the war is almost over at that point. And so it's easy for us to criticize their choices. But they really thought that these recruits were needed to win the war. And as we know, history is never quite as cut and dry as we'd like it to be. And so when we're talking about soldiers bringing flu or being the first cases identified, we have to remember that we're talking about a highly monitored group of individuals who couldn't just stay in bed if they felt sick. So they had to report to a medical officer to get off duty. And then they're much more likely to be recorded as cases of flu. Whereas amongst civilian populations, there's no comparable monitoring system. And we also have to remember that the barriers between military camps and civilian centers are very porous, with people traveling to and from with ease. So we had the uh, military very much involved in the moving of the flu yes. into Canada. And, you know, I mentioned to you previously, uh, we exchanged some emails, and one of the very first interviews I, uh, I ever aired as a broadcaster in my very early 20s was at the time with an elderly gentleman who had been a doctor, a U.S. doctor, in the First World War mm -hmm. uh, in 1917, and he had been supporting troops that were in the, on the front lines. And he told me then, and I was fascinated with the story uh, right after that, mm -hmm. he said that he, the most of the soldiers he treated were, he was seeing them for the flu, not for war wounds, which mm -hmm. was quite the statement. Definitely. So, But if we look at the doctors, if we look at the medical technology of the day, we look at that from 1918 and we compare what we have today. Let's go back to 1918. Sure. How, how was uh, medical technology and medical knowledge of the day engaged, Professor Bogart, to counter the pandemic at that time? Yes, so looking through medical journals and the letters and diaries of military sources, it's really clear that military medical officials, doctors and nurses were working really hard to utilize the breadth of medical knowledge at their disposal and to help their patients, as well as to conduct research and publish that research to benefit the medical profession. 
So while the virus that causes influenza hadn't yet been identified, for example, in Canada, a vaccine is quickly developed to try and combat the secondary respiratory infections like pneumonia, which caused a huge proportion of deaths during the pandemic. And thousands of soldiers across Canada are vaccinated starting in October of 1918. And this is just a month over the start of the fall wave of the pandemic, which always struck me as really impressive. And we're also so lucky that American military officials recognized the opportunity that they had to study soldier deaths during the pandemic. And they collected tissue samples from soldiers who died throughout the pandemic. And these samples were preserved to the present day. And they've provided significant insight into the 1918 flu through recent genetic research by scholars like Jeffrey Taubenberger and his colleagues in the United States. So because of these researchers, we have learned, for example, that descendants of the 1918 flu virus are still circulating today. But really, to go back to your question, the most effective treatment was good nursing care. And the nurses really went above and beyond in the care of their patients. For example, offering to write letters home for soldiers too sick to write themselves, and even carrying on correspondence with their patients' family members after the soldiers had died to comfort them. And so this is all after working long hours in military hospitals. It's amazing to think about what they did. And I think a lot of us had no idea that they actually were able to create vaccines at the time, but they weren't able to see a virus under um, under lab- laboratory conditions. So they were up yeah. against a situation that we're not at this Definitely. time in the, in the 21st century. So what was the international impact of the pandemic? Yes, yeah, so it's so important to remember that in the Canadian context even, this is an international event. And as we're living now, pandemics don't respect national borders. And in 1918, there are Canadians scattered and moving around the globe, and many Canadians with family overseas, and this pandemic affects all of them. In my own research, one of the saddest cases I've come across was a young soldier who volunteered for the war effort in 1918, and he makes it overseas only to die of pandemic influenza so far from home and right before the war ends. So family members have been getting letters, and all of a sudden those stop. And reading those letters and imagining that family's loss is really heartbreaking. But in a broader sense, the pandemic affects different places in different ways, and it all really depended on the local context. So even within and between cities, there are different experiences. Uh, To bring in another Canadian example, In Anne Herring's research in Hamilton, Ontario, she found that the hardest hit areas of the city were those that were crowded and impoverished compared to the wealthier areas of the city. Uh, As another interesting side story, uh, Howard Phillips, a very famous 1918 flu researcher, has recently written that without the 1918 flu pandemic, the Great War might not have ended when it did which is an angle that not a lot of historians had considered before. And really, we're still thinking through the impact of this pandemic 100 years after its occurrence. Really is amazing. Uh, Dr. Herring, uh, as you probably know, was a guest on this program twice and spoke to us about the pandemic, and she did make that case. Just as today we're finding out uh, the socioeconomic realities of people coming to play as far as how well they do in, in dealing with the pandemic is concerned and there was one other thing that i and and just thinking about this as you were sharing the information an early piece of news that i read about the pandemic in 1917 
was that more than 50%, now this is American soldiers, more than 50% of American soldiers who died during the war in 1917, more than 50% of them died of the flu. Yes, it's absolutely staggering. And this was the H1N1, and it is still with us. It's not disappeared. Yes, descendants of that virus are still circulating among human populations today. Let's conclude the uh, our conversation. I want to ask you about any similarities or parallels between life a uh, hundred years ago in Canada and Canadian society during the pandemic, and what is occurring here now in 2020. Are there any? Yeah. So on one hand, it's really hard to draw direct parallels because so much is different. We're not at war. Society has really changed, and there have been great strides made in medicine. But on the other hand, as an optimist, I like to think about some of the instances where people pulled together and hope that we can draw something positive out of what was a great catastrophe. So I'm thinking here about what my students found in their own research on Kitchener-Waterloo. And during the 1918 flu, we see that people really work together. So, for example, factory owners hired nursing staff to conduct home visits for their sick employees which was just unheard of at the time. Uh, and another example, when one newspaper couldn't operate because their technical staff were sick, the competitor, the competing newspaper sent their staff to help so that people in the region could still get their latest news updates. Uh, another example, doctors and nurses worked long hours seeing patients, often exposing themselves to the pathogen. And so I'm definitely not an expert on coronaviruses or the present pandemic, but from what I've been reading in the news, we are seeing this same kind of pulling together to get through this pandemic now as well, which is really uh, heartening. Yes, it is. It is, and we've seen and uh, we've witnessed and will continue to, I'm sure, seeing our healthcare professionals being uh, uh, publicly applauded and, uh, and thanked for putting themselves at risk to take care of, uh, of others and businesses helping each other out. There is a more of a societal sense when, uh, when, when a, you know, a dangerous situation develops, as is happening now and uh, very clearly happened 100 years ago. Dr. Bogart, thank you so much. Good talking to you. Thanks for taking the time. And thank you so much for having me. It's been so great talking with you and your audience. All right. Professor Candace Bogart uh, from Wilfrid Laurier University. Her expertise is the 1918 pandemic and particularly how it was brought to Canada by, by soldiers. By the way, I just uh, tweeted out something just before the show started, and I didn't expect it to get any attention. What I tweeted was China's population, approximately 1.4 billion. Canada's population, slightly over 37 million. Yet today's coronavirus statistics show Canada with total cases at 116,858 and China 84,385. Canada's deaths 8,945 and China's at 4,634 deaths. Does this seem believable to you? And it's getting quite a bit of response on uh, on Twitter. It doesn't make any sense to me with their population being 40 times ours. China's population is about 40 times that of Canada. And their caseload, their popular, their uh, their COVID nineteen caseload, is what ninety four or about thirty two thousand less than Canada, and uh, their death rate um, about half of uh, Canada's. And of course, the uh, the uh, COVID nineteen began in China. I 
I, the, the numbers just don't make any sense at all. So question for you now, might Lafayre we cause a federal election? While conservative leader Andrew Scheer has called on the prime minister, Tristan Trudeau, and the finance minister, Bill Morneau, to step aside for the good of the country over the we scandal, the Bloc Quebecois has gone a step further. If Justin Trudeau and Bill Morneau, quote, do not agree to leave their posts, end quote, and resign, Bloc Québécois leader Blanchet is threatening to force a non-confidence vote in Parliament this fall, and if successful, overturn the Trudeau government and force a federal election. So how is this playing in Quebec? Is Mr. Trudeau in trouble in Quebec? And if so, are the Liberals in serious trouble nationally? Of course, Monsieur Blanchet has his own issues to deal with. He's been accused anonymously so far of sexual assault 20 years ago. My friend Nino Colavecchio joins us, Quebec political strategist, radio talk show host, Parti Québécois member, former PQ candidate. And the first time I ever heard you on the radio, I was sitting in the newsroom at the then Chorus radio station, AM 940 in Toronto. I just arrived from Ontario. I didn't know anybody, just sitting there. And I heard you going on. And I said to Chris Murray, who was our program director, who the hell is that? And he said, that's Nino Colavecchio. And uh, I said, who is Nino Colavecchio? And they told me all about you. And over time, we became friends. How are you? I'm very well, Roy. How are you today? Good. You must be tired of that story. You'll allow me a a quick comment on your Chinese uh, figures. If you believe those figures, you'll also believe that Justin didn't know how much his mother got paid. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) That he would actually say that to the people of Canada? Unbelievable. It is. It's stunning. I watched that and I thought, how can you possibly say that? Yeah. It was really, it's it's amazing. As a guy who worked in the PR field many years, and with politicians particularly, uh, he was was just in trying to follow, you know, the script. I am very proud of my mother and she's done so much. And Pierre Poilier, God bless him, was fabulous. How much? Prime Minister, it was fabulous. One of the greatest exchanges I've seen on television. <laughs> really, really good. I quoted you on Twitter. It was, TV. It was bad for Canada. <laughs> yeah, well said. I quoted you on Twitter, by the way, in our email exchange earlier this week, and I'd been in touch with a few people about what was likely to happen when Trudeau was going to um, testify. And uh, what did you write here? Hold on, I got it here somewhere. I said he was going to give us a mea culpa with a slight tear in his eye. That's right. And I you said all would be forgiven. And you predicted that all would be forgiven. Yes. Do you still think so? But, but well, I think that that was so strong. Pierre Paulier with that question was so strong that that that's one of those. Well, that's one of those that will be playing ten years from now. <laughs> yes. One of those those question and answers he, he didn't get away he didn't get he tried very hard to play that you know i'm sorry i should have recused myself yes exactly mr prime minister you should have recused yourself there was another question another question put to him another person who made a comment saying well you know you you were you uh, went against the against the the ethics committee found you guilty not once but twice and what do you do to somebody on strike three <laughs> I know. that was another I know. I know. and it's and, and you know, it's his own ethics commissioner. Yes, but you know, you know, this brings us to, to the core of this. I think, you know, this is this is not so much. I don't believe Justin Trudeau's trying to did anything in terms of trying to um, 
put any of this in his own pocket. Let's put that aside for a moment. But it's all what it is about is is privilege and entitlement. It's being as having been fed with a silver spoon throughout your life, you know, not having had to not understanding what it must be for Canadians when they have to make a tuition payment, when they have to make a mortgage payment. You know, he doesn't know what a what a, a, a weeks of gro- a week of groceries costs. He's so far out of the reality of everybody's life that he can actually think that somebody can forget a forty-two thousand dollar bill. Yeah. Right. That his yeah. finance minister didn't notice that he didn't know he owed forty thousand. That his mother made six hundred and forty-two thousand, but didn't tell him. They didn't talk about this. Like, so can you imagine the conversation? Here we are. Hi, mom. How you doing? Oh, doing well, <laughs> traveling around the world. You know. Oh, really? Yeah. What are you doing that for? Oh, I can't tell you because someday you might have to answer a question about why you gave him a nine hundred million dollar contract. Jeez, <laughs> it gets me. It gets me so upset. So that's what it's about. You know, it's a, it's a sort of a privilege, not understanding that you know these kind of dollars to the average Canadian are, are astronomical. That you know yeah. they're having, they're struggling, and then to have the gall to try and keep—he keeps putting, you know, in, in his, a little bit of spice in his conversation by saying, "In this era, of, in this pandemic era, give us a break, Mr. Prime Minister. We're talking about nine hundred million dollars, okay? And and what happened to our government? What happened to our civil service? Where we can create programs that we don't know how to manage? We need to hire someone else to manage them." That's the other aspect of this, which is scandalous. I was on the air earlier with the uh, CEO and president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, Dan Kelly, and they're talking about another 158,000 to maybe 218,000 Canadian businesses, small businesses, closing their doors forever because they can't survive. Yes. What's going on? For them, For them, 5,000 bucks, $10,000, it may be the difference between survival and not. Exactly. Exactly. So, because tell me, tell me, Nino, how is this playing in in Quebec? How are Quebecers responding to this whole wee situation? And more particularly, uh, the member of Parliament for Papineau, also known as the Prime Minister's performance on Thursday. Yeah. Well, two things. First of all, you know, some some politicians have all the luck. Justin is one of them. So he's saved by a pandemic, right? So. You know, people people's minds are are much more on their day to day, as you said, day to day survival of of, their, of themselves and of their businesses and how they're going to pay the rent. It's much more that. Uh, so this this whole this whole scandal, as as uh, as much as it plays in in the political class or you know in the media, uh, the the average Canadian is not as is not as tuned in on this as they should be. They would be in another situation. As far as Quebec is concerned. Another lucky guy is Blanchet. So Blanchet, you may have heard, maybe some of your listeners didn't, are not aware, but Blanchet was uh, anonymously, I must say, anonymously, and then and then the uh, it was and later withdrawn. But he was accused of having had uh, a form of sexual harassment uh, in, in, on someone. Uh, it, it, had, it was done on a website anonymously, so it kind of faded out. But he handled it uh, as a as a guy who, who, who teaches uh, communication, I can tell you that uh, his, his team handled it perfectly. They went out, they came out aggressively and said it never happened, and the whole thing kind of died down or was dying down when, lo and behold, he decided this would be a good moment for me to say the prime minister should resign. I'm not saying he did it for that reason, but boy, what great timing. 
that suddenly changed the whole. That other news went right off, right off the air. Never happened, right? <laughs> so, it's called manipulation. Managing, in terms of managing the media and the press, he did a great job. Now, nobody in Quebec wants an election, and when he says that you know Quebecers want to get Quebecers aren't even listening to this. You know, most of them are are, are are disgusted by it, just like every other Canadian. But it's not top of the mind, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But the manipulation, at least the effort of manipulation, uh, continues, and it comes so easily to them. That's what I find really disturbing, that they are so comfortable at trying to, and often successfully, manipulating people, that it's just second nature. So what if I got accused? Look, I will just come out and I'll just say I didn't do it. I'll smile into the camera, mea culpa, as much as is necessary, uh, and, I'm not and, and carry on with my life. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nino, my friend, I have to run. I thank you so much for the time. I hope you'll come back soon. It's my pleasure, sir. And uh, remember, you know, don't be blinded by the man's hair. No. <laughs> Justin, that is. <laughs> 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 Cheap yes, shot. Okay. <laughs> right. Thanks, Nino. Take good care. Nino Calavecchio joining us from Montreal. One of the most frequently talked about subjects on this program has been climate change. We haven't done it over the last couple of months because of the pandemic and other political developments, but climate change really has been one of the most talked about programs or segments on the, on the program. My guest is Dr. Bjorn Lomborg. He's the author of False Alarm, and uh, he's the head of the Consensus Center think tank in Copenhagen, uh, Denmark, rated among the best think tanks in the world, with seven Nobel laureates contributing. Dr. Lomborg was also named to Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World. And uh, he does support uh, human-induced global warming. Now, the book is called False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Many Others. And what I found interesting, and I found this on Dr. Lomborg's uh, Twitter feed this morning, is uh, not only does his book generate controversy, and his books normally do, um, I, I know he'd agree with that, but particularly in the New York Times, Dr. Lomborg and Professor Joseph Stiglitz, who's a recipient of the Nobel Prize in Economics, are facing off over false alarm. Dr. Lomborg, good to have you with us. How are you doing? Hey, Roy. It's good to be back, and uh, I'm doing well. I hope you're well, too. Indeed. That's uh, that's no longer a throwaway question. That's a, a relevant question in conversations these days. I know. Uh, what's going on between you and uh, Joseph Stiglitz of Columbia University? <laughs> well, so, uh, look, right. I wrote a book, which I think is uh, it's, it's my best book, really, uh, talking about how we fix climate change smartly. Uh, that requires us to stop being scared witless, which many of us are, uh, and start thinking about this issue smartly. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people really don't want to give up on this it's the end of the world sense of, of climate. And Joe Stiglitz is one of them. Uh, so he actually, uh, he, he uh, promised New York Times, even before he'd read the book, that he was going to give it a bad review uh, because he doesn't want anyone to believe that this is anything but a catastrophe. And hence, humankind has to spend everything and the kitchen sink on fixing the problem of climate change. That's not just wrong. It's also a way to make sure that we're wasting trillions and hurting a lot of other people because there are lots of other problems in the world. 
And you've said this to us many times on this program, and I remember speaking with you immediately prior to the Paris uh, conference in 2015 and immediately following, and you pointed out how much money was going to have to be spent globally, trillions or maybe hundreds of trillions of dollars over time to accomplish essentially nothing. And yet when I look at your book, uh, at the very beginning I see uh, uh, a sign that is uh, held by a child or it's I, there's no, I didn't see a picture of the child. I saw the sign. You'll die of old age. I'll die of climate change. That's frightening. It is. And it's frightening that so many, both young people and really everyone, are so afraid. So uh, a recent study from uh, a survey from Washington Post shows that 57% of all young people are now afraid of climate change. And 82% uh, fear, sadness, and anger on the environment. This is just for young people. And for adults across the world, uh, a recent survey showed that 48% believe that it's likely global warming will lead to the extinction of the human race. This is serious. This is really, everyone seems to believe this is the end of the world. But just notice what the UN Climate Panel actually tells us. They tell us that in the 2050s, 70s, so about 50 years from now, the impact of global warming will be equivalent to each one of us being somewhere between 0.2 and 2% poor. Remember, by then, we'll be much richer. The UN actually estimate will be 2.63 times richer uh, in 2075. So instead of being 2.63 times richer, we'll only be 2.56 times richer. That's a problem, but it's certainly not the end of the world. Uh, in the book, uh, you have sections, obviously, and chapters, and uh, I, I was reading Climate of Fear. Why do we get climate change so wrong? Well, why do we, and how do we most significantly get it wrong, Dr. Lomborg? Well, remember, media loves bad news more than anything else, and it's very, very easy to get bad news from climate change. So take a recent uh, headline in, in Washington Post and across really uh, the whole North American continent, really around the world, saying that because of global warming, you're going to get sea level rise, which is absolutely true. And that sea level rise will necessitate 187 million people having to move by the end of the century because they can no longer be there because of water. Uh, so that's, 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 that's more than terrible. twice the population of Canada. Yeah, that, that's really terrible. But it's also phenomenally wrong because it assumes that nobody does anything the next 80 years. Basically, everyone just sits there, watch the water lap up over their uh, knees and eventually hips, and eventually they drown or have to move. But, of course, real people don't actually act that way. We don't do nothing. We actually adapt. And the very same scientific article that gives us the number of 187 million if we don't adapt also says if we do adapt, the total number of people who will have to move by the end of the century is about 300,000 people. So 600 times less. Now, 187 million people, that's a catastrophe. 300,000 people, that's half the number of people that move out of the state of California every year. We can certainly handle that on a global level. And again, it underscores the point. Global warming is a problem. But it's not the end of the world. And when we constantly are being told these stories one-sidedly with no adaptation, yes, it makes for great copy, but it's not good information. Who needs to know what's going to happen 
if we don't do anything when we know we're going to make sensible adaptations. Yeah, that 187 million is closer to five times the population of Canada than it is two times the population of Canada. Now, when I talk to people about climate change, and it does come up, and and I get challenged because I look for numbers, I look for the truth, I, that's what I do. Uh, but I get challenged by people say who say, well, you just don't believe, you're a skeptic. I say, well, that's my job to be skeptical about things, to ask questions. If I don't, then I'm just a follower. But what I hear repeatedly is, look, we don't need fossil fuels. For example, in this country as well, I hear people say, we don't need the oil industry. We don't need the conventional energy industry, which is not true. But that's that's what I hear time and again. And I also hear that globally we are just about ready to operate on solar and wind. What's the truth on that? Yeah, that's spectacularly misleading. Uh, remember, what really drove us out of poverty, what gave us the Industrial Revolution, was the incredibly easy access to vast amounts of energy. It's basically that we don't do the heart, uh, back-breaking work, but that energy does it for us, and that's mostly been fossil fuels. But people are absolutely saying, oh, we're just about on the cusp of, of, of revolution. We're going uh, to uh, green energy. But the reality is, if you look over uh, over the last couple hundred years, we used to spend about 94% of all our energy came from renewables uh, back in 1800. Uh, for the last 50 years, that number has been somewhere between 13 and 14%. And it stayed stable there. And even by 2040, we estimate we'll get perhaps 16 to 20% of our energy from renewables. No, we will still get the vast majority of our energy, even in 20 years, from fossil fuels. So when people tell you, oh, we're going all solar and wind, no, actually, solar and wind contributes, according to the International Energy Agency, just over 1% of global energy. It is not, as people like to believe, taking over the world. It is a tiny player, and it will probably still be a tiny player by 2040 when the International Energy Agency estimates it will be less than 5% of all energy. Remember, after we've spent about $5 trillion to subsidize more solar and wind. Yeah, and I'm looking at a quote uh, from uh, James Hansen, who um, is Al Gore's uh, number one advisor, and uh, Dr. Hansen said, suggesting that renewables will let us phase rapidly off fossil fuels in the United States, China, India, or the world as a whole is almost the equivalent of believing in the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy. That's from James Hansen. So when you have that, when you have you, and you, you support human-induced global warming, you say it, it's going on. Your, your think tank is rated among the very best in the world. You were uh, included in the list of the 100 most influential people by Time magazine globally. So why are you having so much difficulty? Um, or let me put it this way. Why do, you, why do your books create such pushback and controversy? Huh. Well, fundamentally, because we seem to all have decided that global warming is not just a problem, like many other problems, but it's the end of the world. As Joe Biden says, it's an existential crisis. And of course, if then somebody comes and says, well, that's actually not what the evidence says, a lot of people get really upset. And of course, there's also a lot of money involved in this. Uh, but the, the, the funny thing is, it's again, it's not me saying this. 
I'm simply quoting the UN climate panel. I'm quoting the only economist, only climate economist to ever get the Nobel Prize, uh, 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 Professor Nordhaus from Yale University. And, and you started off with uh, talking about how uh, Stiglitz wrote in, in New York Times. Stiglitz is a Nobel Prize winning economist in, uh, uh, in uh, information economics, basically things like selling and, and uh, buying used cars, for instance. And he is telling us, no, 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 the Nobel economist who actually knows about climate economics doesn't know his, uh, uh, you know, anything, doesn't know what he's talking about. And this is what happens when we have a situation when so many people have just decided global warming is a big issue. No, it is a moderate issue. It's probably three or four percent uh, by the end of the century if we don't do anything. This is what the UN Climate Panel tells us. This is what climate economics tells us. It is a moderate problem, but we have made it into the world's biggest problem. That both makes us waste lots of resources, and it also makes us forget all the other problems in the world, like lack of good health, as we've certainly seen with the pandemic, uh, but also lack of good education, lack of jobs, lack of nutrition, many other problems that we also have a duty to fix. Yeah. Let's talk about, please, about the, the, the amounts of money that are involved in pursuing what the Paris Agreement is calling for and what that money will actually accomplish and what it won't accomplish under the heading in your book, Why the Paris Agreement is Failing. Yeah. So if we're going to fix climate change, we first need to realize all the things that we're doing that don't work. Uh, and the Paris Agreement is the latest agreement that we've all signed up to. Everyone feels very excited about it. But in reality, it'll fix very little of the problem. So if we continue to actually do the Paris Agreement throughout the entire century, we will reduce temperatures by the end of the century by 0.17 degrees centigrade. So you won't be able to measure the difference in 100 years. Yet the cost you will definitely be able to measure. Uh, we estimate the cost will probably be somewhere between one and two trillion U.S. dollars every year for the rest of the century. So after spending, say, $80 trillion to $100 trillion, we'll have achieved virtually nothing. That, uh, surprisingly, turns out to be a pretty poor deal. Every dollar you spend, you will avoid about 11 cents of climate damage. That's a bad way to spend money. If you took that money and you applied it to some of the other issues and problems that the world is dealing with and facing, and one of them is hunger, um, one of them is education. You mentioned them a few minutes ago. If you took that particular money and you applied it, or a significant portion of it, to the issues, the other issues the world is facing, how well would we benefit? Oh, you would be able to fix all the major problems in the world and still have money left over. Just to give you a sense of proportion, uh, fixing perhaps the biggest issue in the world, namely poverty, would cost less than a tenth of what we're going to be paying for uh, the uh, the Paris Agreement, uh, fixing many other problems like uh, tuberculosis or HIV uh, AIDS, uh, two of the big uh, infectious diseases, would probably cost in the order of $10 billion, so one hundredth of the cost each. So there's lots and lots of other things we could fix. Now, again, uh, Roy, I'm not saying we should not spend anything on climate but we should spend it smartly so that we have money left over to fix all the other problems of the world. And, of course, also 
all the problems that we have individually in our own countries, because I'm sure, as, as in Denmark and many other places, Canada also needs to spend more on its health care and more on its infrastructure and all these other issues. So, again, let's not waste resources just because we're scared witless. Let's spend them smartly and, of course, also actually fix climate. And what do you say to the people who will, with all the conviction in the world, tell you that we have maybe 10 or 12 years left, period? Well, well, I mean, first of all, they should know where that come from. Uh, so basically, this came from uh, uh, the politicians after having promised to uh, uh, limit temperature rises in Paris to 1.5 degrees, they figured, oh, wait, we might want to ask, actually ask someone how we're going to achieve that. And so they asked the IPC, and they came out with a report in 2018 where they said, if you want to reach the almost impossible target of 1.5 degrees, you have to do the almost impossible. That's not very surprising, but it's also not very informative. They simply told us, you have just 10 years or to 2030 to fix it if you want to get to 1.5 degrees. But the reality is we're not going to make it. It's a little bit like, imagine if politicians have promised we're all going to go to Mars, uh, and then they ask NASA, how are we actually going to do it? NASA would say, well, look, it's almost impossible, but if you want to do it, you have to pay pretty much everything you've got and get us uh, uh, for, you know, in order for us to be able to take everyone to, uh, to, uh, uh, to Mars. It does not mean that we should do it. It simply means the UN Climate Panel has answered a very specific question. What will it take to get us to 1.5 degrees? And they said, you almost can't do it. And as you say, uh, and you agree that climate is changing, that uh, humans have had an impact and do have an impact on uh, on climate. But again, there's a finite amount of money to be spent, and there are uh, more uh, intelligent ways to spend that money is the case that your book makes false alarm how climate change panic cost us trillions hurts the poor and many others dr lombard good talking to you again thanks very much and i know it's late at night for you in denmark appreciate that hey wonderful to talk to you take good care all the best dr bjorn lombard joining us from copenhagen from the consensus center think tank he has seven nobel laureates as his advisors, and uh, again, Time Magazine named Dr. Lomborg to the list of the world's 100 most influential people. Today, the government of Canada and Nova Scotia are announcing a joint independent review of these tragic events. An independent panel has been appointed, as Minister Blair has referenced, with a broad investigative mandate to review this events in its totality. The people of Nova Scotia and the people of Canada, oh no you don't, we don't want an inquiry. We don't want a review. We want an inquiry, and uh, subsequently, the demand became so strong that uh, the public safety minister, federally, Bill Blair, tweeted out, "We've listened to Nova Scotians, uh, and uh, confirmed that the public inquiry that people were demanding was in fact going to take place, and uh, nothing less than a public inquiry." Was, uh, was was required and demanded. Uh, Archibald Kaiser, Archie Kaiser, is a professor at the Schulich School of Law and cross-appointed to the Department of Psychiatry at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia, uh, where Professor Kaiser teaches criminal law, criminal procedure, and mental disability. And we spoke with Professor Kaiser on this program shortly after the terrible mass murders. 
Professor, thank you for coming back on the program. And uh, it never was going to be acceptable that the federal government and the province of Nova Scotia, uh, the, your, your province's government, decided on a three-person review of the April mass murders. That was never going to be acceptable. Well, it seemed to me, and I think most Nova Scotians obvious from the very start, that uh, we, I mean Nova Scotians and Canadians, had witnessed the worst mass murder in Canadian history. Uh, the uh, sole perpetrator was shot to death by the police. There was no need, therefore, to be concerned about his fair trial rights. So it was apparent, I thought to everyone, that a public inquiry was necessary to explore all the aspects of this horrific crime uh, to ensure that we understood it, uh, to ensure that, uh, if it's at all possible, we would take steps uh, to try to reduce the likelihood uh, of uh, such a tragedy in the future. So I thought certainly that uh, that required a public inquiry in, in a conventional matter, manner with um, a judge or judges uh, taking evidence under oath and compulsorily uh, and uh, guiding the inquiry themselves wherever they thought the evidence led them. Um, the two levels of government kind of ping-ponged back and forth in a perplexing way. Neither one of them willing to take a leadership uh, role. And then they eventually came up with this uh, quite um, unusual, um, someone, some would say unprecedented uh, um, uh, review, uh, which really had none of the features of a conventional public inquiry. It was going to be held in virtual secret, um, that is, all the evidence being taken um, uh, in uh, confidence and to be kept confidential, um, and uh, with no powers uh, to issue a summons to prospective witnesses, uh, no powers you know, to compel testimony and to take evidence under oath, with the public only getting um, an interim report and a final report. So it was a very strange vehicle. And I was so pleased uh, that uh, the family said this is completely unacceptable to them, and they were resolute in their opposition to it. Uh, they were prepared to accept any delay that might ensue with a full-blown public inquiry. Um, but their leadership uh, was also shared uh, by a, a group of 26 uh, uh, associations um, that comprised a, a federation of women's organizations opposed to misogynistic violence. Um, and they were supported by 33 senators who demanded a regular public inquiry and by the leaders uh, of both oppositions, uh, opposition parties in Nova Scotia. But right. I think everybody acknowledges it was the families uh, that uh, uh, really set the standards here for uh, a responsible investigation of this horrific crime. We well, let me ask you, Professor Kaiser, how is this public inquiry going to take place? What is the scope the inquiry has? How far can they go? Can they compel testimony? What, what is their mandate? Well, first of all, we haven't seen any revised terms of, of reference. Some of the, the terms of reference of the review in terms of substantive issues it's going to be inquiring into probably will be replicated for the inquiry. Uh, but they, just the same as the Arbor Inquiry in Ontario or the Marshall Inquiry in Nova Scotia, will have the power without looking to the government for approval uh, to call whomever they want uh, to require them to testify and to do so uh, under oath. Uh, so although we haven't seen the terms of reference uh, for this new 
um, uh, independent, true public inquiry, I expect it will be able to cover the same ground as the review, but to do so in a manner that will be more effective and will reassure the public because it'll be open. Mm -hmm. We'll all be able to watch it in the simulcast. We'll be able to see the documents and so on. So uh, with, with some possible exceptions, everything will be public. We'll talk to Professor Kaiser going forward. The important news, the important information is that there will be a full public inquiry in Nova Scotia. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.